this is the City and the Sound Music Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Holt. On today's episode, we're going to be interviewing Mr. Jesse Phillips, the bassist of one of my favorite bands, St. Paul and the Broken Bones. This is the last episode for this year, and I know 2020 has been a handful. Luckily, starting this podcast has been a way for me to you know, talk about music, even if I can't play it. And it's really lucky of experience for me to interview one of the members of my favorite bands. So, to this podcast, to next year, to all the music artists I'll be interviewing then, I'm glad you guys are listeners. But before we get started with talking about St. Paul and the Broken Bones and Jesse Phillips, what I want you to do is open your ears, expand your mind, and listen to this. with Mr. Jesse Phillips of the band St. Paul and the Broken Bones. How's it going today, sir? It's going great. Thanks for having me on, Josh. Oh, thank you. I am um, very, very lucky to have you on. Uh, I'll give a bit of a backstory. Uh, when your guys' first album came out, I remember I was, I think it was, I think when iTunes was still a thing and people would buy albums in the iTunes store, I saw your guys' album and I was like, oh, I'll give it a listen. And um, I think at that time I was trying to sort of get back into music and want to make music. And I think that was the first album that Bellas to. I was like, you know what? I got to make music just like this. Like if these guys can do it, I can do this too. So you guys really helped inspire me to make my own music that I make now. Yeah. Um, that was, uh, first of all, it does seem like ancient history, 2014 when people <laughs> were still buying albums and downloading them. Uh, you know, we've only put out three records. Uh, it's been really interesting just seeing the way that music consumption changes uh, through every record cycle, which for us, you know, each record cycle has been about two years. But mm-hmm. no, I, I'm, I'm glad to hear that, man. I mean, that that record was a very, uh, it was a very humble record. Um, you know, I, initially it was just sort of Paul and I making up songs together. 
And then kind of just very, very quickly, um, we were offered a, a record deal uh, with Single Lock, I want to say in December of 2012. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we had to go in to make the record in January of 2013. And we only had like four or five songs finished. So we had to like <laughs> just get in a room and... Why if I stop for a second? 13, 12, which made the record. And, uh, you know, it, it obviously ended up doing much, much, much better than any of us anticipated. Uh, I think we uh, initially decided we were going to make that record, which is called Half the City, for um, it was going to break even at a thousand copies, like, and be paid mm -hmm. for studio costs, manufacturing, producer, you know, expenses, everything. And uh, it quickly surpassed that. I think last time I checked, it was just over 200,000 sold. So, or album equivalents anyway now, which means they also factor in uh, streaming and everything. But yeah, so it's kind of like the little, the little gift that keeps on giving now. <laughs> <It's just> like, <laughs> I, get a, I get a check from that record label like once a quarter and it you know, just seems like free money for something i just made for fun <laughs> oh nice um so i guess how did i know you, you're originally from canada correct yeah I, I grew up in um a remote part of british columbia uh southeastern british columbia right above the northwestern corner of montana which is where i actually live now oh, okay so how did you i guess come to alabama and how did you wind up forming uh kind of starting up forming the band st paul and the broken bones with paul um, it's a, a long and winding and circuitous story as these things often are, but essentially, um, I went to college in New Orleans. Oh, uh, and I just, oh, you are? Yeah. I'm from, uh, New Orleans. Cool. Uh, I, I love New Orleans. I mean, I think it was time for me to leave. Uh, and it was also, mm -hmm. I, you know, New Orleans is a place that allows you to basically have as much fun as you want to anytime you want to. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it was probably more so that way, a little more the wild west, even pre Katrina, which is like, I basically graduated in 2004 and I was um, still hanging out around there around the storm. Mm -hmm. um, and then everybody got kind of uh, displaced for a while. And then I decided I didn't really want to go back was kind of just meandering around. I ended up back in Montana for a while. I'd gone to high school in Montana uh, got offered a job by a friend's family in Alabama, and so moved to Birmingham to work at Arts Music Shop on Highway 280. Um, and I just did that. And then uh, I met Paul uh, uh, through some mutual musician friends that we were playing with. And uh, we had a band called The Secret Dangers for a while um, that Paul was the singer in. And that kind of fell apart. But at that point, Paul and I had become very, very close friends and uh, yeah, basically just kept making music together on a very casual level. And eventually that turned into um, an EP and a band and then the whole last seven or eight years of this uh, St. Paul trip. So I did not anticipate it turning into a career. <laughs> and neither, neither, neither did Paul, honestly. I mean, he was in accounting school. Mm -hmm. um, I think we were both just uh, kind of shocked and a little surprised when <laughs> it seemed that a lot of people really, really dug our sort of like uh, amateurish 
uh, sh- shitty version, shitty punk rock version of like a Memphis Muscle Souls kind of vibe, you know. But um, I'm, I've, I, it still, it still kind of blows me away how it all happened. But uh, you know, I think we've kind of obviously gracefully accepted that this is our lives now or just got to keep trying to push it forward and and get better and um, never stop appreciating that our career is now just traveling around and making music with our friends. So So, so I guess um, you guys, some, I guess we categorize you as kind of like a throwback sound, but I think, I think I've heard Paul talk before that was kind of more like garage soul in a sense you guys are harkening back to the muscle shows kind of stack sound were those like the primary influences you guys look towards when you know doing the basis of the band yeah certainly um i mean i i think that none of us really enjoy the term uh retro soul because it kind of just implies that you know all you're doing is trying to emulate what came before Before, you and and i think i think what's important uh to keep in mind is like you can emulate the sort of feelings of things you like or or the emotions that it translates to people without patently just like ripping off those sounds and, and songs. And although I think we probably did uh, adhere pretty close to the formula early on, you know, I think we've kind of managed to uh, put some distance and some create, you know, some creative spins on um, those kind of vibes in the years since as we've become more mature musicians and, and done it more. But yeah, early on, man, I mean, you know, the Paul sings like he sings and the mm-hmm. band was basically just uh, built kind of to emulate the vibe of Booker T and the MGs backing up Otis writing. I mean, that's, I'll happily admit that and embrace it. And um that that uh, album Otis Blue, mm-hmm. is, uh, the subtext Otis sings. So I mean, you know, everybody in the band learned that album front to back. We played it live a couple of times. I mean, it's it's basically like um, one of the sacred texts for St. Paul and Broken Bones. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, that you know, the the um, the Muscle Souls guys are a huge inspiration too, because you know they're just uh, and and the guys that are that are still up there um, running around. I mean, they're still the same way they are where they're just like humble, small town guys who mm-hmm. just played the ever living shit out of a song. You know? <laughs> and they don't, and they don't, they don't make any differentiation. I mean, they never were like, Oh, we're backing up Aretha Franklin. So mm-hmm. we're an R and B band or like, Oh, now we're backing up Bob Seger. So we're a rock band. Like they just, they just fucking played. You yeah. Know? And um, I think that's kind of like overall the approach we try to take. Um, those guys are a, a real inspiration. I've been lucky enough to hang out with David Hood on several occasions, and he's just the kindest man. He'll he'll talk to you about anything. Like he remembers a lot of details too, which is super impressive. Um, can be like, hey, David, so on that one record that you played on in like 1973, what were you doing? He'd be like, oh yeah, that was a. <laughs> jazz bass you know You're like how do you remember uh, plug- that <laughs> yeah but yeah it was like a jazz bass with the um using only the bridge pickup running into a fender basement 100 using the direct out into the board and i'm like Holy you're shit. like you remember that day <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I can't remember what i did yesterday <laughs> so um i guess when making that first album what was i guess what was i guess some of the your favorite memories like on making that album just because you know you kind of didn't plan for it to kind of become a career so it was kind of you know an experiment and it's like just seeing you know what worked 
Uh, yeah, it was, one, it was fun. Well, I mean, it was certainly, um, I'd been in recording studios before, but mm-hmm. I'd never really been able to like camp out in one for several days. And, mm-hmm. and we made that record at um, a place called the Nut House in Sheffield, mm-hmm. uh, w- which is an old, uh, an old bank that's been converted into old a bank. studio. And it's like, it's actually like a super nice place, like mm-hmm. super cool. I mean, we did the, we did everything to tape, to two inch tape and like, um are you familiar with john paul white from uh the civil wars he's a uh, yeah he's i mean so the civil wars were obviously like a really big deal and they had just i think they had just kind of come uh to the end of their trajectory there and, and john paul was building his studio which is now called sundrop sound and in a different place uh in this house behind his house where he lives um in florence but he hadn't gotten it built out yet. So we were just staying on air mattresses on the floor of the, um, of the studio behind John Paul's house. <laughs> I, I mean, it was, it was, it was fun, man. It was my first taste of like, Oh, making records for real. This is, this is it. I mean, uh, this was my first, uh, I don't think people realize how, um, how time intensive and like hard it is to make, cool records you know i mean like you get up you go to the studio uh you basically stay there as long as you can until you get the song done or yeah whatever and then you know until everybody's fried essentially and then you all leave and like maybe you go get a nightcap somewhere uh but you know most of the time you just end up going home you're ordering food in all day a lot of times you don't see daylight really all day but i loved it man i mean it you know i was it's a novelty for me, still a novelty to me, to me now when we make records. Like I just, I just love that sustained, uh, sustained energy, that mm-hmm. real focus, like focused hyper creativity where everybody is just like investing every bit of themselves into the process at that moment, you know, and doing that for 12 or 14 hours a day sometimes. And like, it's, um, it's a very satisfying experience, but yeah, I mean, making that first record was the, the like been in a room and just like Ben Tanner, uh, who played keys in Alabama Shakes, was was engineering and producing things. So you know, he's real good in the studio and he's real real kind about explaining like, oh yeah, this is this is a compressor. It does this because at that point, like, I didn't have a clue what all <laughs> what's stuff working was. in there. Like, like yeah, like what what are our what are these like big silver boxes? Like, <laughs> what are these mics do? Stack over here, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I had some idea of how it worked, um, you know, just from making like four track recordings at home. And then mm-hmm. like Paul and I did a lot of work at um, Ole Elegante and Homewood in Birmingham with Lester Newby working on the EP. Um, but even that's a pretty homegrown endeavor, you know, that, so it's yeah. it's like it's it's very cool and and functional. But it's uh, at that time anyway, it was pretty bare bones. And so to be in this like big fancy studio with like the 128 channel board spread out before you and like all the tape machines and um all the outboard game and stuff like uh, i still think that stuff's cool i just think it's cool those machines are cool and the process is cool was there a, a really aesthetic to try to keep it to record it that record straight to tape yeah that, that was 100 percent the goal with that one was just to kind of do it as fast and as dirty and as old school as possible just uh get in there play the songs live mm-hmm. i think even a lot of the vocal takes on that record are uh, 
are the ones that Paul was singing in the booth while the band was cutting live. So there's a few, there's a few overdubs here and there, but most of like what you hear is just how we played it that day. We did uh, probably three takes of most of those songs and then mm-hmm. just picked the best one. Um, you know, there's a few caveats in there, but most of them are live. So like, what was the moment, I guess, after you guys recorded that record, it came <clears> out, I guess the moment where you realized like everything was starting to like gain legs and you're like, Oh, this record is big you know like this is like taking off yeah so it was it was interesting we made that record in um january of 2013 and we had planned to put it out that spring and then um i don't really remember what happened i think our record deal had initially kind of just been a handshake friend deal. And then mm-hmm. it became apparent that like, maybe it was going to be a slightly bigger deal than we thought it was. Cause mm-hmm. we started touring a lot in 2013 and started starting to gain some momentum. And, and um, so then we had to like get a bunch of lawyers involved and in everything <laughs> to sort of, you know, hammer out out. The, <laughs> yeah, hammer out, hammer the deal we had made uh, out with our friends and everything. But um I don't know. I mean, it felt like things were starting to happen even before that record came out as we uh, came up on the end of 2013 going into 2014. Um, you know, it felt it felt like maybe there was a chance it was going to do something. And I think it came out um, in f- February and March of 2014 officially. And then it was just like a rocket ship took off. Um, yeah. I mean, I took a a three week leave of absence from my job uh, in, in Birmingham, like to go do the, you know, the basically like the three week a yeah. market headline headlining tour or whatever. And honestly, then I just never, <laughs> I just never, came, never came back to work. Like I could, I could probably still go back there and type my employee number <laughs> in and it would still pop up. But. So it was like a moment where you were like, all right, Hey, I, this band is getting big. I need to do my main job. It's just like, all right, peace. I'm not. <laughs> not gonna... Yeah. Well, I mean the, the tour, the like initial three week headlining tour mm-hmm. just kept getting extended and extended and extended and extended, you know, until like basically we had toured on it for two, two and a half years. Um, so, I mean, uh, I, th- the thinking, the thinking is, um, in a situation like that is like when you have momentum, you just absolutely like need to wrangle and ring every last bit of benefit that you can for it. Cause you just like, don't really know what's going to happen after that. Your sophomore record could be a flop or people could just forget about you because you're a flavor of the moment. Or you just had that like one song that everybody liked, but after that, I just didn't care anymore. So, um, I mean, we were really intent on maximizing the experience, not knowing if, we get to even really make another record or, or continue to, I mean, I certainly didn't anticipate a career even at that point, but it's just sort of like strapping yourself to the, to the missile and hanging on for dear life. Um, and when you're in it, I don't think you even really conceptualize what's happening. Cause you're just sort of in survival mode. Mm-hmm. You know, you're just, I mean, you travel so, 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 so much. I mean, I know you're, you're a musician and, stuff but when you start doing things like all these promotional appearances at radio stations during the day before your show at night and then like tv and you're it's still in a band, so you're having to drive yourself mm-hmm. to places every day yeah it's basically um <laughs> it's just trying to like sleep and um uh, maintain your relationships at home if you have those and uh <laughs> you know a lot of people 
their situation ends up changing it. Um, <laughs> they sort of get in that process just because it's a really hard time. But uh, yeah, I mean, we would do really bananas things like uh, play a show in Iowa City. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember, I think it was Iowa City one time or maybe somewhere in the Midwest and uh, maybe it was Omaha. And then we would have to be like loading in in Boulder, Colorado mm-hmm. the next morning for our uh, lunchtime radio show. So it's just like an overnight drive in the van you know, um, mm-hmm. all the way across the Midwest to get into Colorado, set up and then play a lunchtime show and then go like sleep for a few hours in a hotel and then get up and probably do a show in Boulder that night. And I mean, it, it's, it's like that a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's really difficult to think about what's happening to you when you're basically just like <laughs> going through the tunnel, just keep going. Yeah. Just, speed. yeah. Just trying, just trying to make the next thing happen, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, Obviously, we're a little smarter about how we do things now. Um, and we also just don't have to pound the pavement as hard anymore. You know, we're a little more established. So, but I know that Paul, like, won't even go back and listen to a lot of the, uh, a lot of the performances from those days, like the first couple of years and they're touring hard because his voice is just like so throttled. He just, <laughs> you know, he sounds 20 years older than he does right now. It's like all raspy and and torn up and torn up um and it's like it's a little bit hard for him to watch you know just Mm -hmm. because like he definitely just in terms of the uh, physical toll that that kind of schedule takes in your body i mean you know definitely he's got the hardest job for sure Mm -hmm. um i can always kind of make my fingers work if i have to but (laughs) yeah um... It it was a it was a wild, wild, wild ass few years, man. The mm-hmm. first, the first like two years, uh, that record came out. So I guess when you're like going through that tunnel, was there, I guess the moment, cause you guys opened up for the Rolling Stones. Was that like a shock to your system? Like, Oh God, we're opening up for the Rolling Stones. Like one of the most, most world's famous bands, like what is going to happen? You know? Well, yeah, I think we, um, every time we would get a phone call or an email for a manager for a while, it just uh-huh. seemed like it would be something else that was crazy. Yeah. Um, but I mean like that stones thing kind of came about because we played at Coachella and even playing at Coachella was bananas. You yeah. know, I mean um, sort of, I, I mean, I would say it's probably the preeminent, american festival in terms of just mm-hmm. kind of like this the standard bearer there are lots of great festivals i'm not trying to sell like bonnaroo shore yeah. or a lot of the other ones uh that are super cool but um you know coachella just has this like cultural cachet it's about this there's it. a vibe uh, around it. it yeah and and so to to get uh tap to play that uh was already pretty cool and we were having a really really good year and then i think we did a because Coachella is like two um consecutive weekends i think we did like our our show the first weekend and somebody came up to paul afterwards and um he didn't know who he was and it was just sort of like hey how would you guys feel about opening up for the rolling stones and of course like paul was like <laughs> okay man like whatever <laughs> just like give us the call and we'll, we'll show the up stones. you know <laughs> yeah just thinking the guy was completely full of shit and like not knowing that he was actually like uh, a like very, very, very high level executive at AEG or Golden Voice or whoever mm-hmm. it was that was managing the Stones tour. 
and then we got the call and we're just like all right well this might be as good as it gets boys so (laughs) (laughs) really like it just felt like maybe i think paul said in an interview at some point it just feels like something that might get written on your gravestone like opened up for the rolling stones (laughs) right pretty mediocre life otherwise but (laughs) was it uh was it like a really interesting experience getting to meet you know the stones ron wood jagger keith richards all them Yeah, I think it's, it's super surreal, you know, um, and I, I think, you know, I'm a little more adept at uh, conducting myself in celebrity encounters mm-hmm. these days and being pretty cool, but it was, I've never met a president or like true royalty, but I yeah. can't imagine that the security is higher than it is for the stones. I mean, it's like, <laughs> it's really crazy and so when we finally met, we did a uh, in 2015, we did two shows with them. We did one in Atlanta. Um, and then the second one we did was like later in the year at um, the Buffalo Bills Stadium in, mm-hmm. in Buffalo, New York. And uh, since it was New York adjacent, I think they weren't playing New York City or whatever. There was lots and lots and lots of rock stars backstage at the one in uh at the one in Buffalo and there was all these people just milling around like hanging I was like talk to the bass player from Green Day for a while back then and I was like oh yeah man it's like I loved you I loved you circa like 95 when Dookie came out you know you were a huge deal to me and now here I am talking to you about your Fender signature bass amp or yeah. whatever now uh, but there was tons of us I mean there was there was guys I think from like Tom Petty's band and um I think I saw the guitar player from Bon Jovi wandering around in like black leather pants. I mean, it was just kind of that thing. It was like rock stars everywhere you look. But the Stones aren't down there hanging out. They're yeah. in their, <laughs> they're, they're dressing room. They're, yeah, they're up there in their dressing room. And so, um, you know, we had just played our show uh, and it was time for the, the Stones to come down. And basically they just like their private black shirt security team came mm-hmm. down and cleared out everybody who wasn't in St. Paul and the yeah. broken bones. <laughs> uh, and they all like posted up to make sure nobody could get around, uh, issued strict orders about cell phones and not taking them out or turning them on or like trying to be surreptitious about selfies or anything. Um, yeah. And then the stones came down the, well, the, they call them the four principles, which are, um, <laughs> you know, Keith, Ronnie, uh, yeah. Rick and Charlie, all the other guys that have been in the stones for gosh, some of them have been in the stones for like 15, 20 years now are just like, they're hanging out. The they're there. They're, they're, yeah. They're low key. And they're not. Um, so then uh, they come down and it's just us in this tunnel and we get probably like five minutes to say hello and, and hang out. And uh, it's a very strange five minutes and the official photographer takes a photograph and then you sign a non-disclosure agreement saying that when you get said photograph, you will not post it uh, on the internet anywhere unless they have given you tacit approval to do so. Uh, and then they go play their show and that's it. <laughs> Just like that. You, you've met the stones. and um, Yeah. It's, it's a really, really uh, just like, uh, it's a it's amazing i mean and, you know it's obviously like a treasured memory for for me and for a lot of the guys but um there's no real bro and down yeah. although i think 
I think Paul's experience was a little different because Paul did at some point get tapped to go like hang out in the dressing rooms with the guys. And so he got to have a little bit more of a personalized experience. And uh, Maybe you'll talk to him one day and you can ask him about that. I think Keith like spilled a drink on his foot. And <laughs> about his stuff. It's inspective um, of Keith Richards. <laughs> yeah. I was like, uh, I, the way that Paul tells it is pretty funny. He was like standing there. I think he, I don't, it's some kind of like orange soda and vodka drink that mm-hmm. is was or was Keith's like favorite drink at the time, and they were standing there talking, and apparently Keith was just like, "Bloke!" and just like dumped his drink all <laughs> over Paul's foot, and then Paul was like, "Not a not a normal, not a normal reaction." He just like looked around for somebody to come clean it up. It wasn't like, "Oh, hey man, <laughs> sorry about that." You're like, all good. <laughs> let me let me get you a paper towel or something. It was like looking around for like the the assistant or whatever yeah. that could come handle it um, <laughs> you know, different, different vibes different vibes backstage with the stones <laughs> um, so i guess the experiences that you guys shaped for making you know, doing half the city and then the tour for the first years how did that it shape making sea of noise in that album and was that kind of the i guess the objective going in to make that second album um that's a good question i mean i think uh you know, some bands get hell for making the same record over and over mm-hmm. and over again. And then some bands catch hell for just like, uh, like trying to move and progress and, yeah. and like move, you know, move forward. And I, and I think uh, going to, into the second record, there was definitely a little bit of a, maybe a chip on our shoulder about proving that we weren't just like a novelty uh you know, a novelty band, mm-hmm. um, kind of a one trick pony that, that we actually, we had real badasses in the band and we had songwriting chops and we were thoughtful. And, and I mean, so as intense as it was like touring, uh, you know, on the, on the first record for the two, two and a half years that we did it, we didn't have a whole like, what's the, I mean, it was the old uh, cliche, like you have your entire life to write your first record and like, maybe a couple of months or three, <laughs> do the second months to, to do the second one. Um, and that's actually like very, very true mm-hmm. because it's a total, um, even if you have a very, very high work ethic, it's a total uh, mindset shift, you know, from like just touring and surviving to like being comfortable at home and like feeling creative and kind of getting into a routine with that. Uh, but I definitely think we wanted to, like I said, proved that we weren't just a, a novelty, that uh, we were intelligent and creative as songwriters and had something to say. And I really love our second record. Um, we got uh, this guy, Paul Butler, to produce it. And Paul had made a really, really beautiful record with Michael Kiwanuka. That was Michael Kiwanuka's first record. Um, and we loved the sound and the vibe of that and kind of hope to bring some of that into what we had done. So, you know, I, I like to think it was a little more like nuanced and um, a little more well thought out. So if the, if the first one was just sort of like going balls to the wall with your hair on fire, the second one was actually probably more like that because we were under the gun to write songs, (laughs) but we were were trying to like, uh, you know, express a slightly different, more thoughtful side of ourselves mm-hmm. without losing the kind of like visceral impact. And, um, you know, I, I know not every 
song on that second record is amazing but i also think the high moments are are you know i'm still really proud of them and I think um, I think I think it's aged really well too. I think some of my guys, your favorite guys, song, uh, my favorite songs from you guys are on that record. Songs like um, "Brain Mather," "Midnight on the Earth," "Flow with It," um, "All I Ever Wonder," um, "Sanctify." Like those songs are amazing. And when when I got to see you guys live and you guys played "Sanctify," I was like, "This is every time it hits the chorus, I'm like, ah, oh. <laughs> pull a lighter out." <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. I, I love that. I mean, that one's never going to get old. To, to play live um and I, I like hearing you say that like brain matter is a song i really loved uh, especially mm-hmm. on the record it has these really cool string arrangements mm-hmm. on it that um you know it, it just it, it never really seemed like that some of those songs you feel like people should pay more attention to than they yeah. do and then you're kind of mystified like why when they, they don't, don't. like I, I could I, yeah i couldn't i couldn't tell you why like um you know i didn't see more people uh, talk about brain matter like you know more because i i do lo- i do love that song as well and it's you know it's um i i think paul was like said told me that he was inspired uh by the groveland boys and like some of the shootings and, and stuff that had been happening that, that you know obviously were mm-hmm. a product of rac- racial inequality and stuff and um so the subject matter is actually like pretty heavy too yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know if it comes across that way to the casual listener, but um, yeah, man, Sanctify is is a song that like uh, I don't know if you can tell, but um, it's very like D'Angelo. <laughs> it is with the baseline. You do, yeah, very Pino yeah, Paladino. Like, yeah, kind of, kind of doing that uh, D'Angelo voodoo era, real, real, sl- almost like too slow vibe. <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, but you know, the, I think the the band are like really crushed it when we recorded that, and obviously you have to record that live in the studio. Mm-hmm. And I think of all the songs on the record, "Sanctify" um, really captured a moment. Just like the the band after two and a half years of just like ridiculous touring and playing together and stuff, like you know, was really just flexing its muscle on that track. And like I still love listening to it. It just it just sounds there's just like so much vibe on that track on the record um and it's the years too because obviously it morphs um into something different the longer you play it and there's some different guys in the band now than there was when we recorded it but that's that's still one of my favorite things we've ever committed to take so i guess each kind of album takes a different vibe what was i guess the vibe going into Young Sick Camilla because you know some of the songs in there have a very dance kind of disco vibe songs like Got It Bad um songs like Live Without You like was there a was there really like an emphasis on like listening kind of disco and dance music when making Young Sick Camilla um I I don't know if that was exactly uh, a conscious thing but I know that um we were interested maybe working with someone who had a slightly more modern sonic palette so we worked with this producer uh jack splash who's like a very well-known and respected guy in the kind of modern r&b world and Mm -hmm. and hip-hop world and i mean uh, jack we weren't sure how that relationship was going to go but uh paul and i had gone out to la a few times and worked with jack um in his or in a studio in la and it 
ended up just being like a supremely positive experience. And we weren't really, we weren't really sure what the um, end result of that was going to be like sonically or aesthetically, but we knew that it was a lot of fun to write songs with Jack and have Jack sort of work on our ideas. And um, we knew that it wasn't going to be the same as, as the previous two. So, I mean, if I had to, label it with a vibe i would say it's probably the most la record we've done <laughs> just from a production standpoint you know it doesn't it doesn't feel as earthy and uh, it's definitely a lot more um uh produced i guess produced yeah. is the best word like it's just it's it's a little slicker uh i mean you know jack's a badass he's got a real aesthetic to what he does um and you know, I think most of the songs were were better for it in the end. You know, mm-hmm. um, I think a lot of the stuff turned out really well. Songs like "Got It Bad" that are just like bangers. You know, because that's that song. Sometimes we, we could get a little like heavy-handed with our own musical ideas and mm-hmm. adding like weirdness or maybe like too much, uh, like too many lyrics and things like that. Too many lyrical ideas into a song just because we get into our own heads about it. You know, and, and Jack was able to sort of like balance all that stuff with just a straight like party, you know, party <laughs> banger vibe. <laughs> so that was really fun. He was he was down for anything. I mean, we might work with Jack again someday. He's uh he actually just shared with me he's working um do you know Valerie June? Um name sounds really familiar. Yeah, uh, I I don't know if I'm supposed to say anything, but I think she has I know they got her they have a uh they have an album or a song out already from mm-hmm. their upcoming record. I mean, he's just really graceful at taking people who've sort of, um, you know, worked in a slightly more uh, organic or earthy environment mm-hmm. or traditional with traditional instruments and stuff and allowing them to sort of like get wacky, mm-hmm. uh, but still, still in service of the song. And um, I mean, honestly, like we had no business, being in a studio with Jack, just being in his like, <laughs> you know, yeah, little band from Alabama, and, and Jack's got like records on his wall, <laughs> a lot of records on his wall that have names like Alicia Keys and CeeLo and you know Kendrick Lamar and stuff on them. But yeah, no, he turned out to be amazing to work with, and he's still a friend. So I'm sure we'll circle back around to working with him again at some point. And that I think that album kind of moved you guys into like like a kind of newer sonic palette because I guess a song like "Got It Bad." Um, there's some synthesizers on there that I heard you guys used. Yeah, synth bass. Well, I think I had read uh, on a, somewhere that a lot of like uh, I was basically like I'm a hip hop fan, but like, I'm really into hip hop mostly because of the production. Yeah. And, you know, st- I mean, stuff like Wu-Tang and stuff is really near and dear to my heart, mostly just because of the RZA is such a, a nerd about like all the super badass vintage and obscure and not obscure, you know, uh, R&B. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I'm into beats, like really into beats and production. And I was kind of like trying to figure out how, uh, some of the bass lines just like bang so hard on the hip hop records. And then I, I think I read somewhere that it's like, oh, they're not using electric bass or they're using electric bass and they're doubling it with synths. So I bought a, uh, I bought a, uh, a Moog sub fatty 
at some point and just uh there's just it just adds all this extra like butt down low you know that mm -hmm. um you might be able to get it with like a six string electric bass but i i don't know i mean i just don't think there's any substitute and, and, that, and now of course like having had a moog for several years like realizing that like all that early west coast stuff like the dr dre and the chronic stuff like oh, that's yeah. just it's all moog it's just like all moog bass and those bass lines are so badass <laughs> um and then uh you know, I kind of like integrated it into the St. Paul thing. And then we started working with Jack and then we, our, uh, our keyboard player, Al Gamble is like, you know, uber badass from Memphis, but mostly a Whirly and, and Hammond guy sort of had to kind of like nudge him. You know, <laughs> In that direction. Hey, hey, yeah, play the mood, play the mood, play the mood. <laughs> and then once he took to it, he was just like off and running. And, I, and now I think he really loves it. We, we actually like the band bought a profit to, uh, uh which is another like super badass yeah, synthesizer, synthesizer. Mm -hmm. like but that one's uh, that one's polyphonic so you mm -hmm. can play like multiple notes yeah. instead of the moog which is mono and uh yeah we've got a lot of synth happening in the live show right now <laughs> it makes me makes me really happy um but yeah all that all that stuff is just sort of uh, uh you're just trying to make moves that keep you inspired mm -hmm. you know um, it's not fun to do the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over again the same way. And as much as maybe some people would like you to do that, I mean, that's just no way to survive and thrive as any kind of artist, you know, you got to keep moving and, and learning and trying new things. And I know all of that's a cliche, but it's, it's true. Like, I don't think people understand how in the course of like writing and arranging and rehearsing and recording and touring on a record, like at the end of that process, you've got thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of hours like tied up in some of these things. Yeah. Like, um, you know, when it comes time to do the next thing, you often just want to do something different just for your own <laughs> sanity. <laughs> so I could think you're, um, the guy, the kind of choice of covers you guys do live really kind of shows the kind of musicality and like the different sides you guys can explore. And cause I think you guys have done Tame Impala, Prince, David Bowie, you know, songs that I guess people wouldn't expect that you guys to do, but you guys kill it when you do it. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you saying that. Yeah. I mean, um, all that, all that stuff, uh, if nobody in the band just exclusively listens to vintage R&B, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, although that, although it, that, I mean, it's a, obviously a big deal. I mean, it's a big deal to me and I love those records and they're still in regular rotation, but yeah, there's a, there's a ton of other stuff. Um, I've loved Tame Impala since, since way before they were cool. I like, <laughs> like, uh, no, no, no. When the, the record inner speaker came out in like 2010, mm -hmm. I mean, I, um, I don't know what this says about me, but I've always loved like stoner, uh, stoner rock and psychedelic rock. Um, sort of like another great, if I have to pick genres, I would say psychedelic rock is another like huge love mm -hmm. of, of mine personally. Um, and Tame Impala's uh, inner speaker came out in 2010. I was like an instant fan and <laughs> I, I had been following them closely ever since. Mm -hmm. And it's been kind of fun to watch them go from um, indie to huge. Yeah. And not only that, there's a really funny meme I saw that I thought was super accurate. It said like, um, 
it was a split screen meme and uh in the top half of the screen it was like said tame impala fans like circa 2011 and it was a bunch of like nerdy dudes like sitting around smoking out of a bong in like a cloud filled <laughs> room and then, it, and then it was like tame impala fans 2018 and it was like a bunch of white ladies sitting around a kitchen like drinking white wine <laughs> um which is really which is really funny but the funniest part of it is like um wherever i saw that it had gotten posted uh kevin parker had commented on it and was like oh you could just uh, scratch the word fans and it would still be accurate <laughs> so scratch like, the word. people in general <laughs> yeah i think he was referring i think he was trying to like you uh, uh, make himself a little bit like mm-hmm. he's turned into kind of like a bougie, like, <laughs> bougie. Uh, bougie guy or whatever but um sitting around drinking drinking wine um but uh no I, i've loved that band for a long time i mean prince is is paul's favorite artist of all time mm-hmm um you know and, and we're all just listening to a ton of ton of stuff all the time some of, i mean some of the guys in the band are like really into metal and i'm not but i think metal <laughs> is really fun so it's you know it's fun to occasionally like try to play something with that approach or uh a lot of the guys are into some of the guys would be like big time jazz jazz heads or jazz players i mean obviously for a lot of horn players that's a big thing yeah uh you know if they're not just sort of uh, straight out of the classical tradition mm-hmm. um yeah we listen to everything i mean and there's eight people in my band so if you factor in the appetites the musically omnivorous appetites of, of eight people and they're all sort of like having varying degrees of influence um mm-hmm. into the goings-on then you know there's going to be a lot of that stuff that seems like it's out of left field for us but it's it's not really i mean you know somebody in our band is and Dignity. probably multiple people yeah, yeah are like huge fans of that stuff and very familiar with it it's not just a novelty thing so is there a certain song that you would like to cover as the band uh, let me circle back around to that because there's lots of them that we have talked about mm-hmm. and i'm drawing kind of a blank most recently i was listening to, uh to the uh, Talking Heads album "Remain in Light," which is oh, sort of like that's a good one. <laughs> it's a it's just, yeah. it's like it's one that Paul and I connected to mm-hmm. really early on um, in our friendship, and uh, so that's kind of like a special record for us. But I hadn't honestly listened to it in probably over a decade earnestly, and I didn't realize how uh, like Afrobeaty it actually mm-hmm. is. Like, um, and then I kind of read up on it and you know, it was was kind of true. Like a lot of those songs kind of just like sit on one chord or one riff and kind of like are hyper repetitive Mm -hmm. and, you know, uh, and it's, it's very, very informed by like, by Afrobeat on whatever level. And I think it would be fun to kind of take that Mm -hmm. part of one of those songs and then plug it back into our band and like, see what we could do with it. Um, Especially as the band's gotten older, we're a little more comfortable stretching out on some of that stuff. Um, so I, I don't know which song maybe houses in motion would be the obvious one but uh yeah we'll see there's 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 a ton of stuff we've talked about doing for a long time paul wouldn't cover prince because he thought it was sacrilegious but <laughs> the cover of prince song. yeah he, he got over that thank goodness so. <laughs> um 
when seeing you guys live, I, you guys debuted a new song. Um, so I guess with everything going on with COVID, you know, you guys obviously had a lot of time to work on new music. So I guess what is some of the new music you guys been able to work on? And I guess, I guess possibly the process of a new record that you guys are just have in the pipeline, I guess. Sure. Well, we've actually uh, recorded a shit ton of new music this year, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, one of the, one of the bright spots um, of an otherwise pretty down year in a lot of ways. Uh, but I think um, we've got two records basically done and they're very, very different. We made one in Birmingham at Communicating Vessels um, over there over there in Woodlawn. We started that one in February, kind of just, just barely like pre-pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we made another one i think it was it was either the last part of august or the first week of september in memphis tennessee at uh, sam phillips recording services which is a studio i love um because it's just like i mean it's it's got ghosts for sure <laughs> and you, you, you feel that when you're yeah. in there um and then they're 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 very very different um you know, uh, making the one in February kind of pre-COVID was a little more all hands on deck. Everybody's around all the time. People yeah. are stopping stopping by the studio. You're going out to eat you know, for dinner mm-hmm. every day and kind of getting that break in the process. Um, and it's all over the place. Um, it's a lot louder. It has a much different like tonal color. Um and then it's when the when the lockdown sort of happened and everybody was just home. Um, we had a super creative period again, uh, kind of over the the late spring and, and early summer, and basically like a whole bunch of kind of low key mm-hmm. introspective songs came tumbling out. So that then we went to Memphis to record those later in the year, which was a very different experience because you know COVID stuff. I basically I drove from Montana uh, to Alabama, um, quarantined, and then, you know, we were doing all the testing stuff and everything and limiting studio personnel Mm -hmm. as much as much as possible and basically worked with a skeleton crew. Um, Some of the guys that weren't comfortable being there uh, did their parts later at a different studio, you know. um, And it was a very different thing because it was basically just go to the studio and hide out yeah, and kind of record these quiet songs and they're like kind of very lyrically driven and everything. Um, But it turned into a really beautiful record. And so the song you heard uh, in Hattiesburg, which is uh, just like, I think a finger picked acoustic song, probably that's the one you're talking about um, called quarantine love song. Yeah. Uh, that was one that sort of arrived almost fully formed from the time I sent Paul the uh, scratch track and he sent me back the, you know, the lyrics and the melody and it was basically almost done at that point. And so that, that one will be on the, the Memphis record, which uh, I don't know if I'm at liberty to say, but I think is going to be called um, angels and science fiction. Oh, nice. Um, but we're in a, a strange period right now because we're trying to well we're just getting into the holiday season so not a lot is getting done in, mm-hmm. the, in the music industry um 
fourth quarter. Yeah, fourth quarter. You know that mm. that period between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Too, Nothing's getting really done. <laughs> uh, just, just, yeah, it's just like things really kind of like get slow. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're kind of like shopping them around to labels and stuff right now. So um, basically done. Hopefully next year, maybe maybe two, maybe we'll put out two records and maybe an EP. Even I don't know. We got a bunch of extra songs. We don't really know what to do with. <laughs> it's pretty cool. <clears throat> so. Thanks for nothing, 2020, except for new albums. A bunch of yeah, <laughs> except for a bunch of like really cool songs. <laughs> um, I guess with everything COVID happened, you guys, you know, did a tour, socially distanced, you know, playing outside venues. Is it a bit weirder than you know usually being able to play in, you know, interior venues and also just kind of seeing the audience spaced out in that way? Is it kind of like a trip? Yeah, it was, I mean, it was very strange, uh, as you might imagine. Um, I mean, it was, for me personally, it was kind of anxiety inducing um, because I have a lot more travel involved than a lot of the guys getting into shows. Uh, although I think, um, I think I I didn't have to travel for that weekend of shows. You said you came out to the one in Hattiesburg. Yeah, right? Hattiesburg. Um, yeah, I didn't have to travel before that because I just sort of stayed in Alabama to avoid uh, traveling much. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's a little nerve-wracking to be flying around on airplanes and in airports and yeah. you know hotels and cities, different cities all the time. Um, but yeah, just just from a stage standpoint, I mean, it's it's very strange because you don't have the same level of energy and, and crowd interaction that you normally would, obviously. Um, and when we booked those shows earlier in the year, you know two or three months ago, it was like, oh, it might be time to start dipping our toe back into the mm-hmm. into the playing shows thing and just see what that looked like. And then I think once we started doing them, it was quickly apparent that it's the Wild West. Uh, <laughs> every place is going to be different. Yeah, like, pe- People are going to adhere to COVID protocols and rules differently in every mm-hmm. place. The promoters are going to be rigid, different, like they have different levels of rigidity about it in every place. Um, the venues are going to, are just going to be different. I mean, everything we did was obviously outside and socially yeah. distanced or a drive in, but, um, we did, uh, our final few shows, um, I guess like two weekends ago in Texas. And mm-hmm. I think we just decided like no more, no for more. A while. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just too much, man. I mean, and then, you know, obviously numbers, started surging again mm-hmm. and you're only you're only in control of so much and especially once people start start full added level of existential mm-hmm. anxiety on top of just like figuring out how to make your band safe and how to keep your band in a bubble and you know make sure there's no super spreader event on a tour bus or yeah like, <laughs> you know <laughs> um because if one person gets sick on a tour, then bus everyone's sick like, on a tour. Everyone, bus. everyone's everyone's getting sick, and like yeah. COVID, is, COVID is obviously like so contagious that um, you just have to be really, really careful. But there's still no guarantees, even if you're all like getting tested regularly and trying, you know, trying to self isolate everything. But then it adds a whole other element into it when you get to a venue and and you know the stage hands. May or may not have different, different, yeah, have different <laughs> yeah. ideas about it, and I'm like, I don't know, it's just um, the whole thing is a lot to deal with right now. That being said, I was very grateful to play shows, 
just because it had been so long. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, that kind of thing really gets into your uh, once it gets into your DNA, it's it's hard to not do it. Yeah, I think you do. You, just playing shows is what you do. You know, um, my band has played like. I think the last time I counted like 860 some shows over the last seven years, like, you know, it's just, just part of your lifestyle. It's part of your persona, like part of your identity, I guess, for better or for worse. And to just not do something like that for yeah. several months is, is strange. Is, yeah. It's strange. It's tough. Um, and so I was great. I was grateful to play. And then like, we made a little bit of money, which of course was nice after a year of mostly not making money, but um I don't know if the uh, anxiety trade-off was worth doing any more <laughs> than, than we did. Uh, the, the shows themselves, you know, were all well, all of the map. I think once we did the first couple and kind of just got used to the way it was going to be, um, with the crowd being far away and kind of spread out and not being as, uh, you know, intensely responsive in the way that we were used to. I think I think it was fine. It was fun just playing shows. Um, we did do one super strange one in North Carolina, I think that mm-hmm. was, uh, it was a drive-in show. Um, and there was no PA. Uh, that is really so, weird. <laughs> yeah. It was so strange. We set up, we set up on stage and our front of house engineer, Dave was like, instead of being out front at a mixing board, like throwing it at the people in their cars, he was backstage in a trailer, mixing to a little like radio speaker um, and people had to tune their car stereos to a certain, that's a certain freq- frequency. And that's yeah. how they heard it. So they're seeing you like normal, but they're hearing you the, differently. Yeah. The, yeah. The, all the audience going out there, uh, FM stereo in the car. So that was, that was pretty weird. You're like, how is, how is the audience going to hear my precision tone on this? Um. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to like judge people's car choices, mm. but I'm like, you know, probably want a pretty high end sound system <laughs> to appreciate what's going on here. <laughs> I kid, I kid. I mean, it was still again, it was still fun. I was glad to play a show, but just uh, yeah, another unexpected thing in a year of unexpected things. So you guys, I know like one of the first years you guys did for this COVID tour was that you played in Birmingham. You played in Abno Brewing Company playing your you know, entire first album. And you guys are so much a Alabama band. So I guess what is it, you know, about the Alabama music scene and just being like proud of being like an Alabama band, like really contributes to your guys' identity as a group? Um, I mean, I'm not from Alabama, so I'm probably not as qualified to speak as <laughs> everybody, everybody else in the band who is from Alabama. But Alabama was my adopted home for a long time, even though I don't live there anymore. And obviously, it's it's um, it's given me so much. Um, and I I really did like living there. I mean, I, I lived in Birmingham, I guess, for like or Alabama for 12 years, and Birmingham for like 10 or 11 of those. And uh, I mean, it was just always, um, I think we always just felt embraced, certainly by Birmingham, but by the music community at large in Alabama. I mean, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the club, the the Bottle Tree that used to exist in Birmingham, which was like basically the epicenter of Birmingham's music scene for Mm. a period from like, I don't know, 2006 to 2015 or something. I mean, Mm -hmm. um, 
it it just it just felt like at some point um, that we were uh, yeah it'd be like people were proud of us yeah. like proud that we proud that we were from Birmingham and like proud that we had got on to do things that a lot of people don't ever get the opportunity to do um, and felt supported by the by the city and, and the state in a lot of ways and I, I think. Um, certainly someone like Paul who is born and raised from Alabama I mean being from Alabama comes with a lot of baggage too yeah. right Be- because of everything that's cultural perception or, yeah right yeah and I mean a lot of times when it makes the news it makes it the news for the wrong reasons mm-hmm. whether it's like a Roy Moore almost being elected or whatever <laughs> is. you know but it never it never really like gets airtime for all the things that are right or good with it. And, you know, um, if you're a music head, I mean, yeah, I guess you're familiar with like Muscle Souls, which was, you know, a a huge thing. But I mean, if you think about like those, those guys were uh, creating music with like integrated studio bands and Mm -hmm. and studio staff and artists and stuff like, before they could even go get lunch together and yeah. like the, the same cafeteria down the street, you know, I mean, that's really mind blowing to think about, but I think that's, that's, I think that's a cool thing, you know? And I, I mean, I think all these, uh, like the food in Alabama, for instance, I think like people will talk about the Nashville food scene or whatever. <laughs> I, think, I think, I think Birmingham's, Way blows better. it away. Yeah. <laughs> like 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 pound pound for pound per capita, mm-hmm. the number of delicious places to eat compared to the total number of places to eat in Birmingham is very very high. I think, um, and it's 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 across all price points. You know whether or not you're uh, eating at the weird barbecue joint out in Moody or yeah. you know at the the posh Frank Stitt restaurant downtown, like. And all points in between. I mean, there's a bunch of like different kinds of ethnic food out on Green Springs, so or like, you know, it's just the meat and threes, like Mickey's West. I mean, it's just like, I don't know that. I think that's underappreciated, and yeah. maybe we don't want it. Maybe we don't want it to be. It's super our, our secret. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, uh, I I can't really speak to that, but I mean. Um, Tons of stuff like that, like lots, lots of I've, I've always thought it was like a lot of uh, amazing folk art, mm-hmm. you know, kind of scattered around the countryside in Alabama. Um, you know, there's just a, there's just a lot of things to love about it, and pe- people in their own communities really seem to kind of take care of each other too, in a way that I think is is underrepresented. Um, it's it's just. I think, like I said, I think there's a lot to love about it. And I spent many years um, as uh, an Alabama apologist, which mm-hmm. is a thing I always say to people because, <laughs> I, you know, people who'd be like, you're Canadian, you live in Alabama by choice. By choice. <laughs> what is going on? And yeah. be like, well, um, let me tell you. <laughs> and, you know, I, again, um, I mean, I'm only recently back in the north. Yeah, uh, I just I've been here, I guess, about a year and a half now. Um, and my girlfriend moved up just a little bit longer ago than that, so I started spending a lot of time here in like 2018 again. But um, 
like I said, I mean, it's, it's given me everything, man. Um, I bought my first house in Birmingham. I mean, it gave me a career. It gave me a, a chance to like do things in music that I never, never ever thought I would. Um, my best friend is from Alabama. You know, uh, I would have never met Paul, and I never moved to Alabama. And Paul is like one of the. I would say strange, but I don't think that reflects my fondness for him. One of the most unique humans I've ever <laughs> met. And he, he could not come from any place besides Alabama. Alabama. You know, like he's totally a product of his influences. Yeah. The dude, uh, you know, loves Alabama football and barbecue, but is also like super well thought out and woke and like <laughs> hyper aware of his the history of the state. And, and uh, you know, he's a lot of uh, the reconciliation of a lot of things rolled up uh, wild <laughs> talented package. Sorry, my cat is making all kinds oh, of you're fine. <laughs> Say hi to Josh. Oh, how's it going? I have a cat too. Juniper, I don't know where she is. Juniper LaBoop. She uh standing on the other side of the office door just like squawking at me. <laughs> Why did you move to Why did you move to Alabama? Um, it's really a funny story. I um I live you know I went to school in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. I'd been there seven years, um, and I, I got to a point where I was like, "Where am I? Like, am I gonna move? There's really nothing in Hattiesburg." Uh, and I started getting my girlfriend, and then she was moving to Birmingham because she's originally from Coleman, Alabama, uh, and she's a theater designer at the Red Mountain Theater Company in downtown Birmingham. Uh, oh. So she was like, "I'm moving." Uh, so you need to make a decision if you're coming or not going. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, there's really nothing for me in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. So I decided to make the biggest move. Um, and, and I, and I came a few months before I moved and I t- took a lot of factors. I looked at the city. I really liked it. We played there as my band. And I was like, I really like this, the vibe. And I was also like, well, some of my favorite bands from there, like you guys. And I was like, right, I think, think I'm gonna make the move. So that's, it was probably the best decision I've made. One of the best decisions I've made. Uh, I, personally endorse this move from Hattiesburg. <laughs> personally I mean, endorse. I, I, uh, no, I mean, and, and I mean, Birmingham uh, needs people like you, you know, people, people that, that are coming in are, are, are like motivated and creative and want to make shit happen. I mean, you know, um, unfortunately, I think sometimes a place like Birmingham, you kind of end up with like a, I don't want to say it's like a brain drain, but you know, yeah. there are a lot of people that I think that grow up in Alabama that can't wait to get out. I know. Mm-hmm. And then they're creative and smart and motivated and they go other places. Maybe they eventually come back or maybe they don't. But, um, you know, it, it obviously, obviously need, uh, need people who want to do stuff to keep the, keep the scenes afloat and moving forward and functional and fertile. So, um, also, if I'm being honest, I mean, Hattiesburg's kind of a weird town. <laughs> it's 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 definitely a weird place. It's a place where it's it's as a great music scene. I was part of it for you know four years. It was great, but at the same time, it's also really weird. It's it's two odd sides to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, I think that's being polite, but yeah. <laughs> like when I when I was at your guys' show, I um, 
I, I think they went to buy one of your guys' shirts. And I think, you know, I was it was nice to be back in town because I left and I was like, oh, it's nice to be back in Heisberg. I really miss seeing my friends and everything. But at the same time, someone's going to buy you one of your CDs. And I think your guys' merch person was like, hey, can you guys just like put on a mask? And they're like, oh, we're outside. We need to put on a mask. And I was like, you know what? Maybe I don't miss Hattiesburg as much <laughs> as I thought I did. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, you'll probably find those people anywhere, honestly. But yeah, yeah it probably a little more. Uh, like when we played a show in Austin, I felt like people were really like, kind and respectful of the rules it wasn't just like hey man we're fine okay <laughs> this this is how this is how we have nice things right now this is yeah. how we have shows we all just play by we just play by the rules everybody follows the rules cool no problem yeah. you know um yeah different vibes for sure um i don't outside of like playing in mississippi i've never spent a lot of time hanging out there but i, I Hattiesburg is primarily like what's it's a big university town. Yeah, it's a big college town primarily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Most of like most that. Mississippi's kind of towns are primarily you know sort of just college towns in a way. Right, that's what I thought. Yeah, because the ones on the interstate between New Orleans and Birmingham don't seem like was it. There's like Laurel, Laurel, Meridian, and what's the one at the very bottom? Is that Biloxi? Is that the one? Well. I'm thinking of the one on the on 59 that you had it done, but um, that's that's basically just how I gauged how far I was from New Orleans. It's just whatever, <laughs> how many towns whatever, Mississippi, whatever, whatever town I was blowing past. Um, no, I don't. I don't want to talk too much trash on Mississippi. I'm sure there's some great things there. I've always had a lot of fun in Oxford. I think the band really likes playing in Oxford. Um, and it's it's just a town with a kind of like unique vibe. Um, but I'm not really into SEC football like some of the other guys are too. So like some of that stuff doesn't have quite as much charm. Like I can't even remember which Mississippi town the like I don't Mississippi State, Ole Miss. Like I or can't which, yeah, which them, one is there? Keep, like where which one is from where? <laughs> I can't. Uh, so you're not a Bama fan. <laughs> um. Look, I would just say I think it's great if a team from the state wins. <laughs> I like how happy it makes everybody are in the state. Yeah, I like how happy it makes the guys in my band <laughs> when Alabama wins. But I, but I have other friends who are Auburn fans. Yeah. And, you know, so it's like, you know, just try to be diplomatic about it. <laughs> so one of the questions I already asked everybody um, is what if I guess you know everything's quarantine happening? What is it like the music you've primarily been listening to during this time period? Um, it's been a pretty weird year. I, I spent a ton of time listening to our to our own records, which I know mm-hmm. sounds like very very conceited, but uh, <laughs> so we miss we made uh we made these new ones. And so, you know, the process of making those and like mixing those and arranging them involves possibly thousands, but certainly hundreds of listens to different versions of songs as you go along. And and so I spent a lot of time doing that. Um, I got very like strangely into Danny Brown um the, w- the weird weed, weed rapper this year yeah. mm-hmm. um 
but I think I, I got into him like sideways. Like I always kind of get into these guys like sideways, like, cause I got into the guy who produces a lot of those records, Paul White is uh, like a weird, I think he's from London, a weird a British producer guy that produces these Danny Brown albums. Um, there was a, um, I don't remember if they're Irish or Scottish, which I know is sacrilegious if you're them. But, um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, a band, a band called um, the Fontaines DC put out this kind of like post-punk rock record that's just like yeah. very, very, very well crafted, well done. Um, the new Tame Impala record, obviously, I've I've listened to a lot, and I mean, it's probably I don't know if those are all my favorite songs on that record that yeah. he's ever done, but it, but it's certainly some of his. Uh, finest production i mean the like every snare hit on that record just sounds like so badass you know and the synth <laughs> the synth the synths are just like big Walls. and fat and yeah and like uh everything has its own like perfectly curated sonic space to exist in um did britney's record come out this year or was that last britney year? howard's record came out i think i think it came out i feel like it came out late last year but i feel like it's bled into this year yeah i kind of i kind of feel the same way too i mean i like hers her record is is very very cool but i guess that qualifies technically as a 2019 record i think you're right because i think i remember listening to it last winter kind of like pre-covid um i know there's, there's still a couple of big ones that i need to i need to really check out and dig into that um you know i've read a bunch of reviews of end of the year lists and that kind of thing uh um i think pitchfork's which yes, I still look at Pitchfork just because <laughs> I, look at, I look I look at many things, but I, yeah. I still curious about what they think is the best thing. Um, I think they said Fiona Apple's record this year was the best one. I think they said that was I, number one. Yeah, but I I haven't I haven't checked that one out, and I really need to because um, I think that she's a it's amazing. You know, I, yeah, just a really creative. I think she's a true artist, I guess, and. I had my reservations about that record initially because I read that she'd made it at home on GarageBand, but then you know everybody just continues to talk about how good it is. And so definitely need to. I definitely need to check that out. Um, I don't know. I, you know, a lot of stuff I listen to uh, because there's there's so much stuff to listen to that you missed. Uh, in previous history, like especially stuff from before you were born. I mean, I feel like I'm constantly rediscovering or just discovering for the first time like old stuff mm -hmm. uh, that I've ne I've never been exposed to. Um, uh, shows um, at Brooklyn Bowl in, in New York, and and we had a. a super badass sub trombone player who was really into Afrobeat and he like gave me this list of like Fela albums none of which I had never uh, seen zombie you know, and, yeah. yeah yeah exactly but I mean it's intimidating if you don't know like if you're not already kind of like versed into that world because there's so much there's so yeah. many releases and you don't know which ones necessarily without doing a ton of research like which ones are just the tossed off one to like fulfill a record Where, which, ones are essential. which ones the, yeah. yeah yeah so i mean um i feel like i've always got a list of those things uh going that i'll circle back around to at any given time um yeah 
uh, I had to listen to our first record to learn to songs. <laughs> well, because someone we hadn't played in a really, yeah. really long time, and and so I had to yeah spend some time uh, dusting those off, and you like kind of like laugh about it, but you should listen to them on streaming services because you subscribe to them and like. Ultimately, you're getting paid a tiny, 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 tiny. Every time amount. you listen to it, yeah. Every time you listen to your own song, so yeah, definitely going to do it on the the title of the Spotify. Um, I know it'll be hard to choose, but I guess with of all the three albums you've made, is there? It's definitely hard. Is there a favorite song out of all those three albums? Or like, are there are there like, if you like had a top five, like you know, like the songs you're like, these are my favorite songs to reflect us as a band. Yeah, I mean, there's some there's some obvious ones that have been pretty career defining, like "Call Me" or "Apollo." You know, um, "Sanctify" is definitely one of my favorites, mm-hmm. um, just because it's one of my favorite recordings I've ever been a part of making. You know, as we said before, um, another song I really love on um, "Seed Noise" is called "I'll Be a Woman." Oh, that song's um, so good. And that was that was a really it was another one that sort of came along very fully formed mm-hmm. uh, for for Paul and I just sort of tossing back and forth this this idea, and I just love the way that it turned out, and I love what he did with the lyrics and you know everything just kind of like subverting gender identities. Mm-hmm. And enough years ago, before that was even like a thing that a ton of people were talking about yet. Yeah, um, I think that's. That's a great one. Uh, there's a, a deep cut on Young Sick Camellia called Hurricanes and Dynamite that I really love that almost has like uh, like a Pink Floyd vibe to parts of it. Um, the first record I really love, I love a few of them. I think Grass is, Grass is Greener is just a song that really, uh, if you're talking about songs that really define mm the band i mean that that one's been a centerpiece of our live show since the very 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 beginning we've never not played it at a show i think i've like there's a video of you guys playing on david Letterman. i watched that video so many times because <laughs> i was like yeah. this is the shit <laughs> yeah like dave uh if I, if I remember correctly he like comes back into the frame he's like man i might have to start drinking again or something <laughs> like that like after, after it yeah no um that, that's a that's a song that I love playing. It's actually like a very strange song too. You know, it's a, it's a slow burn. Yeah. Six, eight ballad. That's like really long. It's like five or six minutes long. And it's got this weird sort of waltz. In the middle. Psychedelic. Exactly. It's it's very strange, but you can do uh, cool things with songs when you have no idea what the hell you're doing. (laughs) It's true. Well, uh, Jesse, I really want to thank you for being a part of this. Uh, you guys in St. Paul and Brook Bones are definitely one of my favorite bands when the bands have influenced the music I'd like to make. So it really is an honor getting to speak to you and talk about the music that you guys made. Uh, thanks for having me, man. I'll obviously talk your ear off about it any day. Um, <laughs> and then, yeah, once uh, Paul gets a little further along in his baby raising, maybe we'll see if we can't get him on here too. That'd be awesome. Cool. cool. Well, have you me. have a great day, man. Yeah, you too, Josh. Take care. I want to thank Mr. Jesse Phillips for being on this, on this podcast. It really was an honor getting to interview him and talking about one of my favorite bands. 
And I want to really thank all you guys, the listeners, for listening to me this year, talking to some of my favorite bands and talking about music. So, to next year and to all the bands we interviewed in 2021, I say sayonara. I'll see you guys then. And I'll see you on the next one.